Welcome everyone to the Be Kind Podcast, part of the Animal Advocates of South Central PA's mission to create a more compassionate, loving world for all living creatures, no matter what kind of arms, legs, wings, snake bodies, fins, scales, feathers, any other type of appendage. You're awesome and we love you. And today I have the honor of being joined by Mr. Beck again. Hello. And Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Everyone here knows John and I fairly well, so would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do with your time? Yeah. um, So what I do with most of my time is I am a registered dietitian. I work at um, the Ann Barshinger Institute in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm there Monday through Friday. That's my full-time work. Um, I'm also currently in a graduate program for my master's degree, and I also uh, teach yoga with a colleague for teenage girls. Wow, I didn't even know. I we spoke before us, but I didn't know half that. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. So I also have to ask the stereotypical question: What is your vegan journey? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. It's um, my vegan journey. I feel like it's kind of tied to my journey to becoming a dietitian. Kind of wanted to be a dietitian since I was my first year of college. I realized I was in the wrong program, um, and I really just was obsessed with eating and nutrition. And so when I went to school to be a dietitian. I really just. I mean, anything and everything about food and nutrition, throw it at me. And I took a vegetarian workshop. It was like a, an elective course. It was actually a vegetarian cooking class. Uh, one of my professors was offering. That's how fun going to school to be a dietitian is. We get to take lots of cooking classes. And that really introduced me to a lot of the environmental aspects of reasons to be vegetarian, at least. Uh, vegan wasn't as popular back then. So that was the first introduction I had to it, probably. And I loved it. I made my own seitan. We made, we had to, you know, we were tasked with finding all these different ways to make traditional meals uh, vegan, actually. Um, so it was, it was really fun. Um, but then once I became a dietitian, and I actually started working in a hospital, working with people, I found out a lot of people were lactose intolerant. And they told me, you know, it's really hard to avoid dairy. I don't know how to avoid dairy. So I kind of became vegan as an experiment, as an experiment to help my patients who are lactose intolerant find good dairy alternatives. And once I started it, I never looked back. I actually have a cousin who's very close to me. He went vegan and he kind of just shared with me all of his perspectives. And once I learned about all the animal rights issues, I mean, it was it was never a question that it wasn't, I was going to do it forever. Um, and that was, that was probably seven years ago. That's so interesting because it sounds like you had all the different facets of the benefits of veganism, incorporating them into your life and mindset all at the same time. It wasn't one reason, then you switch to another, or as with many cases, you do it for health and switch to ethical. It sounds like you were slowly but surely taking in info from all the different arguments for veganism. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I had learned in, in you know, my coursework all the reasons for health and then the environment and then the, it all just kind of all swirled together around the same time. But I didn't commit to it until about seven years ago. And I'm going to ask some questions about nutrition, health aspects of things. But before we started recording, you we had a brief conversation about the differences between dietitian and nutrition and just how awesome dietitians are. So would you mind explaining for our listeners all the work that goes into being a dietitian? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. It's a huge it's a huge topic within our field because, you know, registered dietitians 
uh, are separate than nutritionists. To become a registered dietitian, you typically undergo a, a bachelor's program in food and nutrition. Soon, in the next couple of years, you'll have to have a master's degree to enter the field. Once you go through your coursework, then you go on to an internship, which is typically a year long. Um, where you rotate through different hospital systems, different outpatient settings, food service rotations, as well as community settings. So you kind of get a feel of all the different areas where, you know, dietitians can be, can serve people. Um, and once you finish the internship, you get to sit for a board exam, uh, and that's a lot of fun. And once you pass the exam, then you get the title of a registered dietitian. Um, in some states after that, then you actually have to go on to become licensed uh, with the state to practice nutrition in the state. So that's what a registered dietitian is. And now we're also calling ourselves registered dietitian nutritionists because I think a lot of people in the public, you know, when I when I call a patient and I say, hi, I'm Stephanie, I'm a, I'm a registered dietitian, they say, oh, you're the nutritionist. So I think a lot of people see us as nutritionists and I see myself as a nutritionist, however, Somebody can go, you know, Joe, you can go online and take a 12-week class and call yourself a nutritionist. So there's just a difference in education level, experience level. So really, when you're looking for nutrition advice, definitely seek a registered dietitian slash nutritionist. And all that was to say that Stephanie knows what she's talking about. <laughs> I try. So Stephanie, when you're doing your work and talking to your patients, prescribing potential ways of eating or lifestyle changes... What kind of things are you telling people to do typically in terms of how it relates to plant-based eating and what kind of results do you see? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. The setting I work in is just so different. You know, working with people who have been diagnosed with cancer is different than working probably with any other group of people that I could with my degree. So before working with cancer, you know, you'd work with people with, you know, people with diabetes, heart disease, you know, kidney disease, um, and, and certainly, I know you had uh, Dr. Chris Wenger on a couple of months ago, and he's amazing, and he's done such great work with heart disease. With cancer, it's different because we do recommend a plant-based diet. However, the plant-based diet has multiple definitions. And so really, with cancer, we recommend people eat a lot of vegetables, a lot of fruits, whole grains. But the guidelines don't actually say you have to stop eating meat altogether, which is a challenge for me, obviously, because I want everybody to stop eating <laughs> right. meat. But, you know, I part of my, my responsibility is to give people the strongest evidence. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of evidence out there. And nutrition research is super challenging, and there's a lot of flaws. But a lot of the evidence does suggest you don't have to eat meat at all. I mean, there's you can certainly have, I mean, there's lots of large studies that have shown vegetarian diets, vegan diets are very optimal for longevity, reduced risk of cancer, but you don't necessarily have to eliminate it altogether. They showed similar results with diets like the Mediterranean diet. So basically, I really recommend people, I always say, you know, if you choose to eat meat, but you don't have to, do so in small quantities. And I really just try to focus on the, the plant aspect of it. Um, and a lot of people are receptive. You know, I think a lot of people who have a cancer diagnosis have a lot of motivation to make any type of change they can. Um, and food is something they feel they can control. So I often see people very willing to adopt a plant-based diet. You already touched on this a lot, but I was curious to hear about how you handle prescribing ways of eating to individuals if they don't necessarily want to start practicing veganism, but you know that ethically speaking, it's the superior thing to do. And also it has health benefits, though the jury may still be out on whether or not it's 
um, unequivocally better than a plant-based diet with just a little bit of animal products in it. And for me, I'd probably have a couple articles in my back pocket to pull out if I want to try and convince people to start practicing veganism. But then there's also the risk that there's a couple articles out there that say the exact opposite. So mm-hmm. uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on your ethical conundrum that you may come into when you're trying to both ensure the health of the patient, respect their wishes, and also promote an ethical lifestyle. Yeah, it's super, it's very challenging. It's one of the things I struggle with the most, I think. Maybe not the most. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things, you know, to work through when you work with this population. I would say I, you know, one of the jobs I take very seriously is meeting people where they are. Um, You know, we, I can't force my, you know, ethical stand on anybody. And, you know, they don't see me there to do that. You know, it's, so it's a really fine balance. A lot of people will ask me, um, that's why, that's what I feel, you know, very open is they'll ask me, you know, well, how do you eat? What do you eat? Or if it comes up, I might say, well, I don't eat meat, but you know, blah, 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 say something like that. And they'll ask me why. And so then I have an opportunity to tell them, but a lot of what we do with, with nutrition counseling, it's, it's counseling, you know, it's not always just education, you know, education's easy. It's like, this is what I think you should do for your health. But counseling is a whole nother thing because eating is a lot about behavior. And so trying to meet people where they are and realize that they might not be ready to hear this. And they, they have a lot of other competing ethical dilemmas they might be going through. You know, they have a lot on their mind as they, as they face this diagnosis. So yeah, I, I definitely support the ethical reasons when I can, when I feel like it's an appropriate time to do so, but I certainly, you know, I don't push it on anybody. I think that's a great view to have. These are individuals who are going through one of the most traumatic life-changing experiences of their lives, already having to make all these changes, do all this extra work, struggle through all these challenges, and to go on top and say, oh, by the way, you can't eat the way you normally did before. You have to totally change your entire worldview and everything you were doing before was wrong. That would be incredibly insensitive and would probably end up hurting them mentally if they weren't in the right headspace. Right. Exactly. You said it very well. It's it's exactly what we have to do. But what kind of health outcomes do you see in your patients who really embrace this way of eating? Huh. Well, I mean, anecdotally, so I'd be speaking anecdotally, I do find that they have a lot of energy. You know, I, I have, it's, honestly, it's unfortunate, but there's not many who go completely vegan, completely plant-based. And if, if they are already, they usually don't ask to see me because they, you know, they have a pretty good grip on things. So it's usually those, that section of our patients usually kind of is, is handling their own okay. And they don't usually require our services, but there are some people that come in either already being vegan or they, they've transitioned because they heard that's the way to go. I find that a lot of them stick with it of that small group, but some of them don't, you know, the, the side effects of treatment are, are really challenging. You know, you have nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, and when you have diarrhea, really eating a lot of vegetables is not a great idea. <laughs> eating a lot of fiber is not what you want to do. Um, so they find a lot of roadblocks, especially if they're new to it. And they also have family and friends cooking for them. So uh, I have one young patient who really stuck to it for a very, very long time. And she, she just started losing tons of weight and it wasn't 
good for her to be losing that much weight. So she did end up adding dairy back in and we kind of worked through that. And I helped her understand that, you know, she's not harming herself by adding the dairy back in, but it's, it's a fine balance for everybody. But I would say a lot of people feel really good, you know, when they eat this way and they, they like it. You mentioned in our communications that you're very involved in activism too, but before I switch gears to that, I got to ask, well, when anyone's on a website, they can scroll down to the bottom and there's all those clickbait ads that say things like, eat these five foods to prevent cancer or fight off cancer by never doing this. What is something that, or foods or ways of eating that people can practice that really help fortify them against cancer, or these negative health outcomes? A healthy vegan diet is really one of the best ways you can do it. There are, you know, everybody talks about superfoods. All, all foods are pretty super, you know, a lot of plant, all plants are, have a lot of different vitamins, phytochemicals. I mean, there's all sorts of amazing things in plants that are active in our bodies. So I always tell people a good variety. Um, so if you can eat fresh, eat foods that are grown locally to preserve as much nutrition as you can and eat a good variety. The, you know, that for kids, we say eat the rainbow. Um, and that really, the different <laughs> colors represent different nutrients. And so that's why it's important to get variety. Yeah, whole grains, beans, nuts, seeds, and, you know, and vegetables and fruits. That's the best way. Well, when a registered dietitian wants to indulge a little bit, what does a registered dietitian eat? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Every brand of vegan ice cream you can possibly <laughs> find. <laughs> I have, like, six different pints in my freezer right nice. now. <laughs> now you're speaking my language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, that's the thing. And I also practice from a very different standpoint where I think people need to eat intuitively and they need to listen to their bodies. So, you know, if there's days you want ice cream, you need to eat it and you're not, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about it. I just had Cineholic today. Uh, they just opened up at Central Market in New York and oh my, it's amazing. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, those are, those are pretty intense. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing your part, John, making veganism accessible to the masses. That's Thank right. you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So switching gears a little bit to the more of the ethical activism side of things, you mentioned you're in a lot of food policy work and CAFOS um, policy work as well. Can you touch a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah. So so I wouldn't necessarily call it work as much as I would call it a very strong interest and area that I, I read a lot about. I I went to Honduras a couple of years ago as part of my undergraduate program, um, and when I went there and I saw how different nutrition was there, I mean, malnutrition was so, so, so high in these rural areas, I came home and was like, why is it so different there? And that got me into the policy section. So then I was like, wow, our food system is a system, and it's run based on policies. And so I wanted to know why people were going hungry. Um, even in our own country, you know, I, Honduras, I was, you know, you're, you're, you're taught in some ways that other countries have harder times eating They're, you know, that's just something that they deal with, but we deal with it here too. Um, and I wanted to know why. So I got into policy um, really just for my own knowledge and to figure out, okay, how do I take this knowledge and then be able to actually help people? And so the most recent policy work I really started reading about was from my graduate program. We were assigned a task to do an advocacy plan for any legislation of our choice, any type of issue that we wanted to. And I found um, Senator Cory Booker introduced a bill into the Senate in January titled the Farm System Reform Act. And I really took an interest to that. Yeah, when I find out when I found out about the confined animal feeding operations and his legislation that he introduced on eventually eliminating the large ones and really changing 
how they're currently run and stopping any new ones from starting. I said, this is a perfect piece of legislation to get behind to support human health and animal health. So that's kind of what led me to getting into that work. Awesome. And what kind of things have you been doing with that work in terms of promoting different policies and what things have been on your radar? Yeah, well, I mean, just for this particular semester, I really focused on that piece of legislation and I created an entire website around it. I looked at lots of studies and papers that were put out by different organizations who have done all the all the work. I just kind of consolidated it while I learned myself. And I created a website and I shared it with all of my classmates. I shared it with friends and really just to let people know what they are, where they are, because uh, especially in, in Pennsylvania, there's a lot here and in my neck of the woods, I guess in your, I guess South Central is a little bit different than here. Um, but actually, yeah, South Central, there, there are a lot of confined animal feeding operations. So I, I did the work of learning what they were, learning the environmental health risks, the public health risks, and obviously the risks to the animals. You know, we already are well aware of that. But learning about the other aspects was really important and really just sharing it with people to be like, listen, I know you may not care about the animals as much, but look at all these other reasons that we need to really think about not doing this anymore. I know it might be impossible to condense an entire semester's worth of work into a couple of minutes, but what are the main key takeaways from that website? The main key takeaways are what you can do. You know, I'm, I'm a big support. I've been traditionally a big supporter of people learning about issues and taking action, calling your legislators um, and telling them how you feel about it. Emails are great. Petitions are great. But calling them is super important because you kind of get your message across a little bit more. But really just learning, watch like watching some of these videos and really seeing the damage that's done to farm workers, that's done to the farmer, like farmers across the country are suffering because of these large scale operations and seeing what that does to them on a human level. And and then also seeing what it does to the animals. I think when you see it, that's why there's a lot of videos on my website. Cause I feel like when you see things and you hear stories from actual people living it, it feels more real and it feels like something you need to actually act on. And my hope is that people reduce their animal consumption or stop it all together and also support, you know, call your legislators and tell them to support this reform act. There's been several co-signers since I started the project, which has been pretty cool. We'll see. It's, it's a lot in the news right now because of COVID. Um, a lot of people are talking about these large scale farms and the meatpacking industry. So I think it's getting a lot of attention, which is really, really awesome. Yeah, uh, you touched on COVID a little bit and uh, something I'd like to hear your opinion on as well. The origin of it, it was a bit hotter topic back months and months ago, but nowadays it's not as near the surface of the media. But uh, can you touch a little bit on how people uh, presume that COVID came about in its relation to these kind of large scale animal farms? I was in the middle of this project when COVID happened. And when I found out that it came from a wet market in China, I, w- I was, of course, just like, so I don't even have the right words for how I felt. But then I did start looking into, well, what about other viruses? And if if diseases can be spreading in wet markets, how can they not be spreading in these, these farms where there's thousands of animals confined in a small space because that's the theory right is that it passes from animals and then it passes to humans there wasn't a lot of information i could find at the time on how other novel viruses like h1n1 or the avian flu developed but there are a lot of there's a lot more coming out now about 
the potential for them to develop in CAFOs. And from my understanding, the these operations don't have to report certain novel viruses, like they don't always test. And the government did just propose that they start reporting and testing for more viruses in these CAFOs. So that's good news that I hope actually comes to fruition so that, you know, we can hopefully prevent another type of pandemic like this. When you're using this kind of information, evidence as a reasoning behind practicing a vegan diet, what is your response when people say, well, I only buy local meat or I only eat backyard eggs or things like that. So I'm not contributing to that problem. Yeah. I mean, I I think that is, it's a hard argument to have with people because number one, they're clearly defending their, their own actions, which, you know, is, is always, when people are in defense, it's always hard to have a, it's more tricky to have a conversation with them. It's a better choice, you know, than it is to buy from large scale operations. But then you would certainly hope to have a conversation with them about how you know, there's still exploitation and still suffering within those animals that are supposedly, you know, raised humanely. My line of reason with that is I don't think I've ever met a person who only eats eggs or dairy or meat from these small operations. If you go out to a restaurant with them, they don't ask, is this mm. sauce made with milk from a small farm or these free range eggs from your backyard? They'll eat whatever you get them. So it's really just only being ethically aligned with your values when it's convenient for you. Yes. Yes, I would agree. That's probably the case. And especially if they're buying anything processed, right? You're getting milk from who knows where in your crackers or your cookies or your, you know, we have no idea where that milk came from. So yeah, that's a a good point too. Before I forget to ask this, Stephanie, is your website still live? It is live. It is live. Um, It's it's not like the cleanest of websites because I didn't pay for a domain name, but I, I, I thought about it as as part of my next step and really activism activism is sort of new to me it's been kind of something that's been evolving within me as something i really want to do so but yeah my website is still live and i can certainly share that with you that'd be great and then i can put in the show notes and make sure people can check it out yeah that would be awesome that'd be amazing yeah and I'd just like to also reiterate your emphasis on calling your legislators. In today's world, so many people send emails and texts that they're just become background noise that are easily ignored. But when you get a legitimate phone call from somebody who actually cares and have a real conversation, that's the kind of thing you remember. Yes, absolutely. And on my website, I have a link to make it super easy to, you know, it takes you right to where to find your legislators, how to call them. And I also have tips on how to call and what to say and you know, how to get your message across clearly. That's awesome. John, any questions from your side? I don't have any questions, but I learned a lot today from you. Seriously, you are amazing. <laughs> oh, so oh glad thanks. You're on the I show. feel like, oh, thank you. You know, I've, I felt nervous doing this because it's not, you know, I'm not a specialist in agriculture or farming. I just something I really, really, you know, care about. So uh, I'm glad I was able to give you new information that yeah, I never absolutely. feel like I have enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, if only quote unquote experts could be activists, the world would change a lot less often, a lot less quickly. So I think you're an inspiration to people out yeah. there who may want to be really involved and change the world, but may not feel like they have the knowledge base or background, but all it takes is a bit of research and a little initiative and you can make a huge difference. Yeah, I agree. And, and thank you both doing what you do. I mean, it's amazing. I was searching for a podcast like this. And when I found you guys, I was like, this is awesome. Thank you. You're also doing really great work. Thank you so much. I sometimes wonder if people actually listen to this. So uh, (laughs) it makes me very happy. Thank you so much. Yeah, Yeah. That's great to hear. All right, Stephanie, any final words for our listeners? 
Uh, no, thanks for listening. And you can always find me, look me up. I'm happy to talk about, you know, your questions about vegan nutrition. Happy to work, work you through it because there's a lot involved with transitioning. So if you're ever questioning it, if you don't know if you're eating the right things and getting all the right nutrition, you know, reach out to me. And if you have any questions for me or John or want to give us feedback and tell us you're listening to, send us an email at bekindpodcast at gmail.com. And make sure you subscribe to us on Spotify, Google, or Apple, or all three. And share with your friends.